0: Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spirito with the Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday. Beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years. So sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show, get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday flashback. And today we're flashing back to what was originally episode 365, an interview with Cam Mather. Great dude, wealth of knowledge, living on 150 acres of forests and ponds in northwest Ontario, Canada. I really think you'll enjoy this one. It was originally recorded January twenty seventh, 2010, right about 13 years ago. Enjoy your flashback support us that'll wrap up our housekeeping and at this point i'd like to uh go ahead and introduce cam mather cam again is the author of a great book called thriving during challenging times the energy food and financial independence handbook uh he's also an author of several other uh books and some instructional dvds thanks for being with us today cam
1: you're most welcome jack thank you
0: so look man i when you send me your book you know, I get people sending me books all the time and you know, I only have so much time to read, but I decided I would read yours immediately when I read the sub headline, which was the Energy, Food, and Financial Independence Handbook. Those are the, the big three we talk about all the time at the survival podcast and say, Hey, if you can get independence from these three and provide some shelter for yourself on top of it, you can be pretty bad gone self sufficient and the things that you do choose to take part as as a consumer with, they're more by choice than need. So I'd like to go through and get your thoughts on each one, kind of a mile-high view of them. And let's start out with energy. Why do you think it's so important for people to take some control of being able to produce and provide for their own energy needs?
1: Uh, well, thanks, Jack. I uh, I've, I've try to read as much as I can, and in the last four or five years, I've probably read 25 books on, on the energy situation in the world. And quite frankly, I believe what a number of geologists believe, which is that we are either at or past peak oil. Uh, you know the maximum amount of oil will ever suck out of the ground, and what's left is is going to be hard to get. And we're doing this at the same time. You've got uh, two billion people in, in in Asia, China, and India now wanting to live our lifestyle. So at the same time uh, as as our oil supplies are going to start going down, we're going to have a greater supply, uh, greater demand on it. So there's going to be a gap there, where I think inevitably. Uh, we're going to have challenges, and I think the price is, is, is going to go up. And it's going to affect North Americans particularly hard because we've become so reliant on it. And gas is amazing stuff, and it displaces huge amounts of human effort. So it's going to get more expensive, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to, to look at the impact on our life. And and we also have a challenge as well, uh, me probably more than you living in the north, in terms of natural gas. Uh, you know, North America has, has hit peak natural gas. The price of natural gas is low right now because we're finding some in, in, in the coal bed methane and shale, et cetera. But, and you know, the price of gas is low because the economy is bad and you've got stockpiles of the stuff. But ultimately, uh, natural gas is going to get really, really expensive as well. So, just from, just from a perspective of somebody living in suburbia, even if you don't believe that, uh, you're, we're going to have challenges beyond, uh, you know, that, you know, it's not a survival thing. It's just going to get more and more expensive to live. Sure. So, i i i sort of i sort of look at 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 my home i live off grid and we have been here twelve years and have been sort of looking at all our uh, energy inputs and how much we've been able to to shift from uh from uh, propane say to electricity from that we get from solar power and from wind and uh you know we we still use some propane and so i I still have that issue but i also i also have you know plan b in in terms of uh, we heat with wood and we can also Cook with wood, etc.
0: You know, I think you're dead on. And I think, I mean, another thing people I don't think realize is how close we are to, I've never heard anybody use the term, except me, I guess, but peak electricity. And I don't mean from a standpoint of how much fuel that those guys can get their hands on to make electricity, but I mean how much we can distribute. I don't know if you heard the show that I did uh, right after I came back from Arkansas this time, but our power went out up there. It was seven degrees outside, and fortunately, you know, we had wood to burn and all uh, that good stuff at kind of our fallback location out in the sticks. But I was wondering why the power went out. So when we got home, I did some research. It turned out it was all out all over uh, the Garland and Hot Springs County area. There were no ice storms. There were no wind storms. This is why I was confused. And what had happened was simply that, excuse me, simply that there was so cold out that just like we have brownouts in the summertime when people peak the air conditioners in the south, that was such a demand on heating from electrical heating that we had the power out for most of that evening on one of the coldest nights of the year. So what happens if we have three weeks of that
1: kind of weather? (laughs) Yeah, and I I think we've all been pretty spoiled over the last little while in, in terms of how reliable the grid has been. But, uh, you know, you've got two factors. We haven't been investing in the infrastructure to, to, keep up that, to that big, huge machine. And, you know, with any machine, you've got to maintain it. We haven't been doing that. And, and the, the problem with the increasing cost of, uh, things like natural gas and propane is the fact that more people are going to fuel switch. And, it, and it's quite inexpensive to plug in an electric heater. The problem is, is the grid's not set up for it. And, sure. Uh, it, 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 the grid is simply going to become much less reliable. Absolutely. And, um, and that's what, that, yes. go ahead. No, and that's why I think, uh, you know, right now people say, well, you know, my electricity is cheap, solar panels are expensive. Uh, but the reality is is that, you know, there's, there's an advantage to putting it in simply because it means that you have a, a, a reliable supply of electricity. And electricity makes your life really great. It, it, it's a wonderful way to have comforts, and, and, and by having some energy independence from an electricity standpoint, uh, you know, you can be sure that those continue, and you don't have to rely on, on a grid that's going to be really taxed to keep up the level of, of service that they have in, in the last little while.
0: I, I completely agree with you, man. Let, let's move on to kind of the financial system. This is a, another one. I think it's probably the thing that people are the greatest slave to uh, on its uh, evil twin sister, I guess, which would be debt, um, what do you think some of the things the average person can do to be more financially independent? Why is it so important that people start looking at this and do that?
1: Well, I think first off that, uh, that the economy is, is much worse than, than we're being led to believe. And if you, if you look at uh, websites like ShadowStats, et cetera, you know, there's a number of people out there that would suggest that the, that, the, that the economic downturn we're in now is far worse than we're being told. And and a lot of this stuff is, is is simply governments have been have been setting it up so that to, so that things look better than they are. But you know, on the NBC National News last night, they basically said the official unemployment rate is is 10%. But if you if you put in all the people that are forced to work part-time jobs or have given up looking. The, the unemployment rate is 17 percent, and then you know if you start factoring in some of these uh, the, the other statistics that they're leaving out, you know in some areas, you know Michigan, et cetera,
0: you know you're looking at
1: 25 and 30 percent unemployment. So I, I think that to, that the reality is is that if you, if you have a job now and you have the ability to make yourself more financially independent, you should be doing it. And the first thing you do is to get off the credit card band, bandwagon and elim- eliminate any consumer debt that you have get a line of credit or, or, or your credit cards. You're paying a, a lack of interest on those. It's an inefficient way to spend your money. So stop using a credit card unless you can pay it off every month. Uh, if you've got a line of credit on your house right now, pay it off. You're paying too much money. You're wasting money on on the interest on those. And and it just means you've got to start buying less stuff for a while until you can whittle that down. And then when you've done that, you've hammered away at that. And it's a huge problem for a lot of Americans. Then I think ultimately you need to look at your mortgage. You, you need to start saying okay I might have a, a 20 or 25 year mortgage right now I need to get rid of it sooner than that and I need to very aggressively find a way to do that because because the opportunities that are going to present yourself during challenging times are sort of fundamentally based on you having some cash to do it and if, if you know if 50 or 80 percent of your paycheck is going to a mortgage you don't have that opportunity so I, I really think that getting out of debt is, is one of the keys to independence and you know, you can't you can't use your government as an example because they are uh, they are in a horrible bind right now. And it's just not the you know the the twelve trillion dollars that you hear of in terms of the budget deficit. You know, if you look at the uh, the U.S. government right now in terms of all its it, its unfunded liabilities, this is obligations they have for Medicare and Medicaid and prescription drugs. Uh, you know, the the chairman of the, the the Dallas Federal Reserve basically says that you know the U.S. government owes about a hundred trillion dollars. Staggering numbers you you, can't you know what cam it's
0: worse way. it's worse than that 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 number of a hundred trillion isn't just what we owe that's the shortfall between now and 2050 that's that's what we can't pay between yep. now and 2050 if you add up you know we're also paying you know interest and and some of our debt we pay back so that's just what we're not going to be able, you know, if everything goes the way the, the government accountants tell us it's going to go, in the rosiest picture we can get, that's how big the hole is. And I'm sorry, but I've always found that those guys kind of screw things up to our disadvantage when they give us numbers. So I'm expecting it to be worse. I'd like to, real quick, if I could, I want to actually read something out of, out of your book. Um, in great big giant white letters in a black background, it says, stop bu- buying stuff seems pretty basic but there's three very there's th- those are three very loaded words which contradict which contradict every message or at least at least we were receiving three years ago at the height of the housing economic boom. Americans are consumers and personal consumption accounts for seventy percent of our gross domestic product that 's a staggering amount and it 's what 's been keeping up economies like china's humming along trying to keep up with endless demand for the stuff Americans want to buy what What do you think about that what what is our what is with our addiction to stuff?
1: Well, I think that uh, I, I think a lot of us just are, are at a stage where it's something we have been conditioned to do and we're bombarded with with messages to do that. And and, and it's tough to, to to find a way away from that. And and I, it's one of the reasons that I like where I live in terms of being out in the woods, uh, I'm not bombarded with uh, billboards I can't get to a mall conveniently. I'm not in an environment where I can spend money, so uh, I, I don't miss it. And it, it, it's, it's really tough to make that break. And, you know, my wife laughs, there's always something I need. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a new power tool or, or, or maybe it's a few more shotgun shells. But there's always something I need, but, you know, Michelle has to correct me. It's not, you don't need it. It's something that you want. Sure. And we have been able to, you know, we've always made less than the median income, but we we were able to to get out of debt and pay off our mortgage and, and move where we did simply because we resisted the urge to buy stuff. We focused on any money we had went to our mortgage. And then once it was paid off and once we were living here, any extra money we had went to things like solar panels and a new wind turbine, all the things that made us independent. We sort of changed our perspective. You know, because a trip to, you know, a, you know, a cruise or, or a trip somewhere, you know, these are sort of immediate. And I have been looking longer term for quite a while. And longer term to me is all about independence.
0: You know, let's let's chat about that real quick before we move on to the next question I have for you. Something you brought up there, I think, is important for people to hear. Um, you said you've always made less than the median income, so you're on the lower half of the income stream. Um, but your place that you have up there in, in Canada is pretty beautiful. You, what do you call it? Sunflower farms. It's, what, 150 acres, you're off-grid, you've got all this land, this huge garden. So to the people that are out there thinking, I'm struggling and I can't live that kind of lifestyle, you're an example of what can be done if you put your priorities there. I mean, what, what would you kind of tell people that are in that, that state right now? That That's what they want. Um, how do you get there?
1: Well, n- number one, I would suggest that you, you need to hang on a little longer because I think there's, a, there's still a massive correction underway in the U.S. real estate market. Uh, that's the first thing uh, don't don't be jumping now. I, I think it still has a little way to go down and And the second thing is is that if if you choose to be far enough out, uh, the price of whatever you buy is is going to be less. and one of the reasons that we were able to buy the piece of property that that we were was simply because it was off grid. and we bought it uh, twelve years ago. It was right after a big ice storm up here where you had basically fifty million people in the northern u s and Ontario and Quebec without power. And and yet, as soon as people heard that it was off grid, they didn't want. It. They didn't want the inconvenience. And I mean, it's been a bit of a challenge to to, to learn how to do it. But you know, we we sort of never looked back. So I would I would suggest to you that number one, wait a bit if you're looking to make a move on real estate. Number two, uh, have a cash buffer, and so that you can look further away. And the other thing that I talk about in the book is just think about how you earn your income right now. I mean, if you're working in a factory and you can't move far away from it, that's understandable. But if you have some flexibility with your job so that you don't have to be within a 20-minute you know, commute to the office, then the further out that you can get from an urban center, the more property you can tend to get. And I have a strong bias towards wanting to be in in, in the country in in, in the future. You and me both,
0: and I think that maybe one thing people also need to do is if you're the guy that works in the factory or uh, that might be a tough one, but there's a lot of people that work a job right now where they really can't get far away from, from work, but if they would add one or two skill sets and a little bit of time management and project management capability to what they're doing, they could maybe seek another line of employment or some type of outsourcing where they could live that life. So... I think your, your advice is spot on. My one concern with your one comment about the uh, market correction with real estate is it's great for the buyer, but I think we're about to have a little bit of a bump, uh, a false recovery that I've been forecasting for about a year and a half now going through this year. And to me, that's going to be a good time to get out uh, if, if you need to from a piece of property that you own in suburbia. So that, that's my only caution there, but I think you're overall dead on.
1: Yep, and I don't have a crystal, crystal ball either, and, and, I, and I agree, you know, versus two years ago, now's a good time to pull the trigger. Yeah. And, you know, yep. All
0: right, cool. Let's go on to the next thing. Let's talk about one of my big ones. I am huge on food. I, I probably use the per, the word permaculture uh, or home garden or grow your own food. I use those phrases on every single episode, even when I'm talking about guns. Uh, I'll get it in there somewhere because because it's so important. I mean, if you don't eat. You're in trouble. A lot of people that get in kind of the survival mindset, you know, they're worried about guns a lot, and I am too, but most of the talk around guns is around self defense. Well, I asked the question, how many physical altercations have you had in your lifetime, and how many times during your life have you had the need to feed yourself, right? And it's always, I've got to feed myself every day three or four times a day, and, you know, maybe I had a fight in kindergarten with a kid. You know, some people have had one or none in their entire life. So I think there's a big thing on food. What, what do you see as a problem with the way most people, not even just Americans or Canadians or North Americans, but people around the developed world today, what do you think is the biggest problem with how we get our food today?
1: Well, I think we're all out of touch with where it comes from, and I think the reality is, is that we're basically eating fossil fuels. For every calorie of energy you eat, 10 calories of fossil fuel have gone in to get it to your plate, from the diesel in the farmer tractor to the fertilizer to the truck that got it to the store, et cetera, et cetera. So the reality is as the price of energy goes up, food is going to go up. And, you know, we're probably spending 10 or 12% of our income on food right now, whereas you have people in developed countries that are spending, you know, 50 to, to 90% of their income on food. So I think that we have to come to grips with the fact that, number one, food is going to be more expensive and that there could be shortages. And, you know, when the price of oil hit $147 a barrel a couple of years ago, you had food shortages all over the world. And and a lot of countries like Thailand and Vietnam that had been exporting rice stopped doing it. And and that meant that people here in, in North America, especially people of Asian descent, knew that there was a shortage of rice and they started going out and stockpiling it themselves. And what was happening in places like Southern California, as you know, if you walked into a, a you know, a, a, a Sam's Club and had three 50 pound bags of rice, if you didn't have a purchasing history to, to verify that you had been doing that historically, they weren't going to sell it to you because there was a shortage of it. So mm-hmm. I think that this is going to become a reality for North Americans. So number one, I think you need to learn the skill of growing your own food. And number two, you need to start thinking about having a, a store of it in your home rather than u- using the just-in-time method where you buy food for that day. Uh, you know, number one, you need a root cellar. Number two, you need a pantry. And the pantry needs to be filled up with the, with the pastas and the canned goods and the rices and the stuff that stores for a long time with with a low energy requirement. Uh, and you can eat very cheaply if you do that and, and, and wait until you see those canned goods and, and all the stuff that we buy for food banks. You need to start having to supply of that in your own home. And and if you do it when when the stuff is cheap, it just means that uh, you're not investing so much. And heck, even if you lost your job in a while, if you had three or six months worth of spaghetti and and, and uh, you know tomato sauce in, in the pantry, well, it's not an, exactly an exciting diet, but it can certainly get you through some tough times. Absolutely. So I think I, I think we need to stop thinking that the grocery store is going to be the way it is in its current form for a long time, and that a small portion of our income is going to be going to it. And and number two, you, you need to you need to get your hands in the dirt and you need to start growing some of your own food. And yeah. that's if if it doesn't matter whether you're in suburbia or whether you're in an apartment, if you're in an apartment you need, need to find a, a place in the city where you can rent a lot and you need to you need to get yourself a garden and you need to start developing the skills that our grandparents had that we don't have anymore.
0: I agree with you, and and on that note, though, there's people that maybe would have a hard time gardening uh, because they're old or have some disabilities or maybe where they live, and I had really not ever thought about it this way, but somebody just commented on the blog. His name's Chad Tudor, and uh, one of the episodes I just did, and what he said was, you know, one of the things people can look at is if you can't afford to buy land and grow your own food right now, you can invest about $600 a year, into a community-supported agriculture program, support your local economy, get a tremendous uh, amount of food for that price – uh, know that you're buying food that came from, you know, a few a few miles away versus a few thousand miles away, and it's actually, you know, at least as a short-term stopgap solution, a more affordable solution than buying land and growing your own food. So as much as I'm for the skill, I wanted to bring that up as you pointed that out, because there's people thinking right now, well, what the hell do I do? I'm in an apartment, and you can do some container gardening and all that, but hey, check out, look for CSAs around you. I think that's one of the the great ways that we can put the ability to, for, to feed ourselves again. Kim, I'm, I'm Probably sure you're aware of this, but in 19, or 2008, in February of 2008, the United States crossed a barrier um, that is very analogous to what we did in the 70s with oil. We crossed the barrier from being a net exporter to being a net importer of food, which means this nation can no longer feed itself. That's the type of thing you're talking about, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and, and and you've got a You've got a you know a double whammy, in the fact that now you've got all this uh, talk about using you know biofuels, ethanol, and biodiesel and stuff. and Now we're starting to take some of our food that used to feed us and put it in our gas tanks because because energy is getting so expensive. So no no question, food is going to be an issue. And, what what are your yeah, thoughts on
0: on genetically modified stuff as well, like the stuff that Monsanto and Conagra and Dupont are doing?
1: Well, uh, you know, I just I just saw that Food Inc. documentary, which uh, which is extremely well done and. Uh, and it concerns me a bit that so much of our, uh, you know, the d- diversification we used to have in, in, in the gene pool of seeds and stuff is, is we're, we're losing a lot of that, and and that's a, you know that's another advantage of, of growing your own food. I think ninety percent of the soybeans that are grown in the U.S. all come from the same Monsanto seed, you know, and and if you had your own garden, you could be growing from your own soybeans and you could be able to save that seed, which you can't do with the Monsanto stuff. So, sure. So, yeah, I just think there's there's tremendous advantage in, in, in starting to learn that skill of gardening. And and as you said, if, if it's not something you can do right now, if you're not set up for that, join a, communi- a CSA or a community-shared or community-supported agriculture network and, and, and get to know a local farmer. Because, because right now, when things are okay, it's a good time to get to know a farmer, knowing that somewhere down the road that that person is still going to be growing food and that you now have a relationship with probably the most important person out there, is the person who can feed you.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. Hey, i got a lot of my listeners that email me and say, I'm up in Canada. It's cold here. You're down in Texas. You're spoiled. We can't grow food the way up here that you do down there. Well, but I'm sitting here looking at your garden from 2003. Not long after you really moved in and started homesteading, and it looks pretty dadgum beautiful to me. What 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 are some of the things that you do to make uh, to compensate for those shorter growing seasons up there in the Great North?
1: Well, you know, I I, I start planting inside, and uh, we've got a cold frame, and I have some uh, some enclosures that I put around tomato plants and things like that. But but the reality is is that you know, the, the bulk of the Canadian population is, is close to the U.S. border as well, and we have a long enough growing season to to, to grow most of our own food. It's simply a, a question of, of what you grow. And a lot of the gardening books out there tend to sort of focus on, on, on vegetables, you know, the, the greens and things like that. But what I talk about in, in, in thriving during challenging times in the gardening book that I'm writing right now is, is to focus on stuff that stores well. So... So I'm, uh, I really focus on potatoes and carrots and onions and things that I know that will keep well in my root cellar. And I'm in the process of, of learning to grow grain and, and, and getting my skill set up that way so that I know I can make my own bread, etc. But really, if, I, I, can't, I can't have green vegetables 12 months of the year here in Canada, but I can feed myself comfortably. And, you know, a lot of people would say, it's well, gee, you're sort of eating a Russian diet, eating a lot of potatoes and onions and things like that. Sure, I I am. But the reality is, is it's my own food, and uh, I know where it came from. It's grown organically in my own soil, and it's pretty healthy for me as well. I mean, nothing's been sprayed on it. And uh, uh, so, so, you know, a growing. I mean, I could be putting in greenhouses and things like that, Mm -hmm. which would definitely extend by season. And and that's sort of on my to-do list as I as I get time and and can can get there. But uh, but right now, I'm not concerned. On our our garden, which is probably about a third to half an acre, you know, I'm going 30 to 40 percent of my own food. That's and awesome. I can certainly ramp that up quickly, and and you know, I still have the luxury of of, of buying bread at the grocery store and and, and buying all these wonderful products because because they're there. But you know, if if, t- if tomorrow I couldn't get food, I've got six months worth of the supply of, of, of vegetables in, in my root cellar that I grew myself.
0: What are your thoughts on livestock? Do you guys keep chickens or rabbits or anything like that?
1: Well, um, we don't ourselves. Um, you know, we've been thinking about getting chickens because we still like eggs and things like that. Um, you know, I, I look at everything right now from a self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency standpoint, and most of my 150 acres is treed, so I don't have too much cleared space. So when I look at getting livestock, I look at, okay, how am I going to feed them? So if, if I was going to get a cow in here or a, a horse say to help me with some of my plowing and stuff, I got to say, all right, well this area right now that I've, I'm going to have to take down trees, I'm going to have to get hay in there so that I can I can keep that animal fed. So it, at this stage of the game, I haven't done it. it it's certainly a, a, a you know a viable part of any sort of or, organic operation where you've got animals that are producing manure that are that are going on fields for vegetables, etc um and uh, you know chickens and things like that we were we're looking at adding at some point but our diet is still pretty much plant based okay. and uh and and quite honestly when i when i look at uh the, you know the amount of land it would take for me to have a a diet that was higher in animal products right now with the amount of time i have to devote for it, it it's just easier for me to focus on on plant based foods.
0: Sure, and we all have to make our own decisions and stuff like that. I think, uh, if, if, if I was in that situation and I wanted to do something, I'd start out with things like chickens and ducks because they have a, uh, a positive effect on the growing environment and on pest control. And they don't real you know, they're not really hard to feed and you don't need a pasture. I, I could see your challenges with, you know, even smaller cattle species and horses and things like that. It'd be pretty tough. You'd have to basically change part of your landscape to accommodate them.
1: Yeah, no, I mean we listen that where we buy our organic strawberries and blueberries and stuff, they always have uh, ducks and chickens out cool. uh, going up and down their rows picking for bugs, and I think it I think, it's, I think it's, uh, it makes complete sense, and it's something we're looking at down the road.
0: Cool, hey man, I've had a lot of authors on the show, and generally they kind of they they bifurcate into like two camps. We've got people like uh, Chris Nurgis from um, Wilderness Way and, and the books he's written, in, and he's really focused on like staying in the city. Right, and, and, and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this. I think it's a personal choice. I just like the listeners to be able to hear yours, and then other folks—they're like me. I—I'm—I'm I'm out of here in about three months. We're moving out of Arlington. I'm moving to my place up in in rural Arkansas. They want to get out in the country, so to speak. Why did you make that choice? What about what? what what's the magic for you about being out in a remote location like that? And you know, what do you give up? But why is it worth it?
1: Well. You know, first, let, let me say that, you know, when I wrote Thriving During Challenging Times, I, I honestly believe that I've written the book in a way that it, it, it's perfectly usable for somebody who's living in suburbia. You know, if, if you're concerned about fuel right now, you should be looking at putting in a ground source heat pump and you can do that in the suburbs and you can put up a solar thermal system for your hot water and you can start developing your garden, gardening skills in a suburban garden. So there, there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being there. Most of us have to be there. And, you know, the, the services and, and support networks are there now. But, but, you know, I moved out to the country long, a, a long time ago simply because I, I just wanted the peace and quiet and wanted to be far from the maddening crowd. But, you know, over time I, I've sort of come to see the advantages. And, and you know, my, my, my first advantage as I see it is that I can be self-sufficient in food. Uh, I'm getting closer to being self-sufficient in energy. And you tend to, you tend to find people in, in the country a little more aware of blackouts and a little more anxious to put up solar panels and have a, have a wood stove back up and have a wind turbine for electricity uh, because they're sort of used to what happens when the power goes out. Because when you live in the country and the electricity goes off, you lose your water. And your toilet doesn't flush and nothing comes out of the tap. So you're suddenly much more aware of, uh, of where this stuff comes from. And I, and I honestly believe that when you look at the challenges with the infrastructure in North America – it's going to be much harder for municipalities to keep water flowing and toilets flushing and all that other stuff. So right now, living in a country, I'm perfectly aware of how those systems work, and I know that right now, if the whole system in, in the city shuts down, my lifestyle doesn't change one iota. I also like living in a cold climate, the fact that, uh, you know, I, I, can, I, I cut all my own firewood. And, you know, it's one of my favorite things to do. It gets me out in the woods. I've never had to cut a live tree. I only cut dead stuff. So it's extremely sustainable from from an environmental perspective, which is sort of why I moved here to begin with. It's carbon neutral because those trees are absorbing carbon as they grow. And when I burn it in my wood stove, they just release the same amount of carbon they absorb and they release the same amount of heat they would release rotting on the forest floor so it's it's a very good way to heat you don't need 150 acres you probably need five to ten acres to to do it comfortably
0: what do you think think about cospicing for that as well i mean i've got i've got this oak tree that was uh cut down um by the previous owner of my place up in arkansas cut flat to a stump to the ground which is not the right way to do it but the, the tree has decided that it works anyway about every two years, I end up cutting about, just from these side pieces that shoot up, probably a half a quart of wood out of that tree. And I, I'm waiting for it to not work anymore, but it's the third cycle now, and this thing's just growing like a freak. It won't stop. So what is, what are, what is your thoughts on you know, the coppicing technique
1: to create you know renewable wood? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great concept. And, you know, my, my property is covered. Uh, I've got lots of ponds on it, and I've got beavers like crazy that are that are They're, love they're to cutting them down things. for you, huh? Oh, yeah, they, they do the <laughs> dangerous work. They bring them down, and, uh, and, I, and I just get to chop them up. But uh, but you know every time they, they they bring down a maple or an oak, sure enough all these all these suckers shoot out and uh, you know and, and produce a, a great amount of biomass. So so no question, a perfectly viable way to uh, to, to heat your uh, to heat your home. And you know I've got the, the advantage of I've got I've got mixed hardwoods, so I've got softwoods like poplar that I tend to burn in the fall, and then I've got hardwoods that I can burn when it gets colder in the winter. So, That's very cool. Yeah, and so once, once you, once you get out in the country, you, you start learning these skills and you start figuring this stuff out and you sort of get into the groove of planting trees if you need to. I think the other thing that I like about the country is number one is, is the sense of community. I mean, I'm, I'm 13, uh, you know, 10 miles from the nearest town, but the, the town has a real sort of sense of community. And in that town, you've got a whole variety of skills that, that, that people share and, uh, and you have a, you know, you have a you have a higher rural component, which means that a lot of my neighbors are farmers, and farmers are insanely resourceful. And 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 if you know, any time I've, I've spent time with a farmer bringing in square bales or whatever, you know, it, it always amazes me how often a square baler will break, but how resourceful a farmer is for jumping off the tractor and pulling the tools out and getting it fixed quickly. So yeah. I see that in the in the future, as as more and more systems start breaking down, we're going to spend more and more time fixing stuff. And and when you live in the city, you tend to be of the mindset, somebody fixes my car, somebody fixes my furnace, somebody does my plumbing. When you move to the, the country, and I ask my neighbor, Ken, you know, who I should get in to, uh, you know, put a new kitchen faucet in. He just sort of looks at you like, what do you mean? You're going to pay somebody? No, let just me show to you. Just put a faucet
0: in? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and that's one of the, the cool things for me about living off the grid has been I moved from suburbia. I didn't have a lot of skills. Uh, there wasn't a real huge uh, knowledge bank out there of people who could help me, so I just started doing this stuff myself. And, you know, whether it was changing the, the, the starter motor in my, my pickup truck or, or putting up new solar panels or installing my solar thermal system that heats my hot water,
0: you know, I'm doing it
1: myself. And, uh, yeah, it takes me a little longer than somebody who's a plumber or an electrician, but I'm learning how to do it, and I'm, I'm developing the confidence that I think I'm going to need in the future uh, because these You know, we're going to have less money to pay people, so we're going to be doing more and more of this stuff ourselves.
0: Which is what everybody used to do uh, not that long ago. I think we've lost touch with just maybe two generations ago and the self-sufficient nature of of the North Americans as a whole and and that creative engineering. The other thing is the community thing. I, I mean, putting it in perspective, my place in Arkansas is pretty remote. Um, once you get onto this main kind of main offshoot dirt road, there's, there's six families that live there um, on that whole road. It's several miles long, all spaced out. Right now, I'm looking at my backyard, I have eight, because I'm in a cul-de-sac, it kind of a big yard for a suburban yard, eight houses that border my fence. So there's more people bordering my fence than on my entire road in Arkansas. I- I'm ashamed to admit it, I've done what I can, but I don't know all these people, because not all of these people really want to be known, and don't want to be interacted with, but the five people at this place that I go well, once every three months in Arkansas, I know every family there on a first name basis. I think the community is actually tighter when we don't put people on top of each other because maybe it's just because we need each other more. I mean, what are your thoughts on, like, you know, rural community versus urban community?
1: Well, when I lived in the, when I lived in the sub, suburbs, we had a cool street. Uh, you know, I had a neighbor up the street who, who was a pyromaniac, and we all got up there for our, our Fourth of July celebration for fireworks. And, you know, we used to have block parties down at our house, and everybody would come down. Um I mean, so we knew our neighbors, but i think i think in in challenging times i, I, I didn't see i didn't feel the sort of bond there where i, I felt that i i could I could rely on their, those people whereas in the country right now uh, you know anytime you hear of a neighbor needing help or neighbor needing uh, you know a neighbor in trouble you know there's a meeting an immediate sort of outpouring of support. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if there's a, if the word gets out in town, somebody's house is burned down and they didn't have fire insurance, you know, next thing you know, all this, all this material arrives and and people with the skills to, to help them rebuild arrived and it's just done. So, I, I really think that you, it, it's, it's tough to duplicate that in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. So, I, 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 I like that. And you know, the, um, the reality is, is that, uh, I think his name is Craig Fugit, who's the new uh, chair of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, in the U.S. You know, and after the disaster of, uh, uh, you know, New Orleans and, and Hurricane Katrina, basically he's, he's at least coming clean. And he's saying, you know what, uh, we're, we'll do our best, but you know who your first responder is? It's your neighbor. And, 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 and maybe the federal government or the state government or municipal government will be along a few days later but right now, your first line of defense is your neighbor.
0: And, and,
1: and, I'm now my nearest neighbor is four kilometers or, or three miles away, but, but I know him. And, and he's my best friend, and and I know every neighbor from here to town, and, uh, you know, if, if they needed me, I'd be there in a minute, too. So uh, th- that that's something that it, it's harder to duplicate in the city.
0: I agree with you, and I also agree with what you just brought up about FEMA and needing to be self-sufficient and being able to rely on community, even if you are in a suburban environment. I think that everybody that's touched that mess that was Hurricane Katrina uh, has come to that conclusion. I think part of it is, like, the government types never want to actually say that because they want you to feel like you need them right they don't want to say you know rely on yourself but i mean the guy that cleaned up that mess was a guy named uh, russell Honore. who was a lieutenant general uh in the united states army and they sent him in there about two weeks into the mess not two weeks after the disaster but two weeks after the response started so maybe three weeks after the disaster and it was just a total freaking mess this guy went in there and to be fair to him he really helped clean it up get things organized he handled the uh the evacuation planning for Hurricane Rita, which is what mitigated that, which could have been just as big a disaster. And uh, he's the guy that told the media when they asked him, you know, why is this one going to be different? Stop. Oh, you guys are stuck on stupids. I really like this guy. But he came out with a book, and it was how a culture of preparedness can save our country, basically, saying the exact same thing after seeing that. He wanted to tell people, look, you've got to be responsible for yourself. You can only expect so much out of your government, not due to malice or, you know, I call it incompetence, but basically what he was saying is limitation. There's only so much they can do. Look at Haiti. There's two million people down there in a really bad situation right now. It's an overwhelming situation with two million. What if we get into a disaster that affects 25 or 50 million? It's almost inconceivable what kind of relief effort we need. And if we're the ones hurting, let's be honest. I mean, America, North America as a whole, we've done some things that maybe aren't the greatest in the world. But when it comes to a disaster in any part of the world, we're the first ones to go there and fix it and try to help. Well, who's going to help us? And I think we need to learn to rely on each other and
1: rely on ourselves. Yeah, and, and, and we've lost those skills. And, uh, you know, I, I have to sort of come back to the ice storm uh, that happened here in, in the northern U.S. and, and, and Canada in Canada in 1998.
0: And, you know, that was a case of
1: people in really really real dire straits very quickly, you know, because the, the electricity grid was down, furnaces didn't work, people didn't have food, you know, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't wash, pipes were freezing, and, you know, a couple of days into it, the, the military was called out. And, you know, I, I think of, you know, people three or four generations ago, an ice storm was an inconvenience. They, they'd still have a pump with water. They, they'd still have food in the root cellar. They could always go out and, and, and kill up tigers or some chickens for dinner. And yet now when when we have one of these situations, it's, 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 a, it's a huge disaster and people can't fend for themselves. And, and I think the classic story is, is the other book that we published, the Renewable Energy Handbook. My, my friend Bill Kemp, who wrote it, when when the military got to his door, he, like me, lives off the grid. Heats with wood. Uh, military gets up to his door. They op- he opens the door. Um, uh, you know, heat pouring out of the house. Bill's standing there in a bathrobe because he just had a shower. Music you know, <laughs> is glaring on the stereo. Bill has a steaming hot cup of coffee. And the military guys look at the clipboard and say, well, we have to ask this. Is everybody in the house okay? And Bill said, never been better. What, what's the problem? So, you know, the, the technology exists for you to be that way if you choose to be that way and, and we've got lazy and we, we go and we earn an income and we give that to somebody else to give us electricity and give us heat and give us food and we have given away that independence and the reality is is uh, I think the writing's on the wall that you can't rely on those people much longer so you better get to the stage where when the military comes to your door you're the one who doesn't need the help and that you're the one over, over knocking on your neighbor's door and asking them if they need
0: help. If anything. they need help, absolutely. Hey, you know, one of the things I liked about your book is it's a very positive message overall. It's like, you know, here's the things you can do. Here's why you need to be doing them. Here's how they make your life better no matter what, which to me it fits so so perfectly with what the Survival Podcast is all about. Or We're like, we want you to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. But the reality is once in a while we do have to look at the precarious nature of what we're in. If you had to sum up your your, your four biggest threats to to our way of life right now, what would they be?
1: Well, I, I think that, uh, that climate change is going to have a, a really adverse uh, effect on our standard of living, and, and it's not just with hurricanes. I think, uh, you know, you're sort of along that belt close enough to the – uh, to the equator, where you're going to find water is going to become a huge issue, and, and it's going to be tougher to grow our own food. So whether we like it or not, I think climate change is going to bite us on the ass. Uh, I, I on, and then I think peak oil would be next uh, because it's it's sort of inevitable that th- those supplies are going to be winding down. And and then I guess then I then I think that the precarious nature of the economy right now is the fact that the that the that the U.S. dollar, which is the world reserve, no longer has any sort of Fundamental value behind it, uh, as it did when it was backed by gold. And now that we don't know what the money supply is, now that the U.S. federal government won't report the M3, mm-hmm. we have no way to sort of to, to, to keep them in check and to, to know how how much money is out in circulation. Therefore, what a dollar is worth. So I, I think, quite honestly, you could see a, a devaluation of the currency or a collapse of the U.S. dollar, which which just changes the whole ball game for everybody. And it, it, it's why one of the things I suggest in the book uh, is that, you know, you give some thought to, to, to maybe having some gold. I think that to owning uh, gold coins or gold bullion or silver uh, is, is, it just, just makes a lot of sense. There was a time when the, the, a dollar was backed by it, and I think there's a, a strong possibility that we'll, it will come back to a time where uh, precious metals like gold and silver will be the mediums of exchange. And that the fiat currency, which is a piece of paper that the the federal government issues and says this paper has value because we say it has value, I think will become increasingly valueless. Because they're creating it out of
0: thin air, right? I mean, they just decide they want more, so they sell a bond and then they buy it back with fake money. That doesn't exist, but they put some numbers into a computer, so they say it exists. You brought up an interesting thing. I haven't talked about this for a long time, but in the beginning I talked about it a lot, the money supply and the M3 money supply. And the M3, is for folks that maybe don't know, is all the U.S. dollars that exist everywhere in the world, both in circulation and in holdings. And several years ago, the government decided not to report that number anymore. And they report what's called the M2, which is a portion of the money money supply. And the reason they did that, folks, is that there was this hockey stick happening to the graph where we were just running away with the money supply. And there was more and more and more and more. And to a point where even kind of the Joe Six Packs were starting to look at it and go, huh. That ain't right. So their solution wasn't to fix the problem. The solution was to stop reporting the number and then say, "Well, M two, which is not all of the money, is good enough." What What are your thoughts on that, Cam? That's kind of crazy, isn't it?
1: Well, it, it, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a fundamental, you know, concept of economics that you you can't tell what the inflation rate is if you don't know how many dollars are out there chasing the goods. And I mean, it was one thing when the U.S. government could just crank up a printing press, but now it's all done electronically on a computer. So it's so much easier to create money out of out of absolutely nothing. So we, we can literally create
0: a trillion dollars versus a thousand dollars today just by striking the zero key a few more times. Yeah, and that's what yeah. they're doing. And yeah. where does the where does the value of the new money come from? It,
1: well, comes from I, I, I existing don't know. Money, I mean, right? I mean, well, that's yeah. what.
0: You know, right? So if we have, a, let's say, we make it easy, right? We have a, uh, a million dollars in circulation. If that was all the money there was, was a million dollars. If we add another million dollars to the economy, the value of every bill goes down by half. That's that's the only place it can get its money is to suck it from the existing supply. That is inflation. Yep. And that's that's just nuts,
1: you know. Um, and, and the funny thing yeah. is, is, it's happening right now, and, and but, but it's not reported because people are always saying, "Yeah, I seem to be spending way more money on food all yeah. the time." And, and and I go to buy stuff, and you know, the package that used to be, uh, you know, a certain size is now a third as big as it used to be. It's a lot smaller for the same price. And so there's all this food inflation going on that mm-hmm. we don't really hear about because it's not reported anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, what they did is they switched from. um the, the, it was the consumer price index to what they call core inflation. And when they went to core inflation, they took things out like gasoline, and then they did like with food, they did like equivalencies. So if to measure inflation, they do beef. But that basically means that we're looking at, well, what is the cost of beef in general versus, so it, we're not comparing anymore T-bone steak to T-bone steak. If that makes sense. And so that's what they, they – they just monkeyed with that number. A couple other ones I'd like to get your thoughts on before we wrap up. What are your thoughts on peak water?
1: Well, I, I, I think that right now that it's uh, – you know, the, we're having huge water challenges throughout North America already. And, you know, we haven't sort of uh, hit, the, you know, hit the worst effects of, of climate change. And, and that is going to be worse around the equator. And that's why, you know, the, the southern states, although, you know, are, are, are better to be in from a, from a heat standpoint, you don't have to worry about heating yourself as much, uh, you're, you're simply going to have more challenges with water. And I think that if you're going to live in a southern U.S. right now you, and, and plan on growing some of your own food, you, you better have a strategy for har- harvesting rainwater. You better have a, a big tank in uh, a, a system set up to, to save it and, and purify it and, and, and have uh, and have the ability to use
0: it what about conservation i'm not really talking about low-flow toilets and all that stuff that people normally talk about but i'm talking about like agricultural conservation with using mulches to reduce evaporation and growing more perennials that are more drought tolerant and and systems and things like that what are your thoughts like is that important for people right now too
1: Oh no, no question about it. And, and uh, you know, the, the gardening book that I'm just finishing up right now, I call it the All You Can Eat Gardening Book. Uh, I, you know, water takes a, a big role in it, and that's that's be, for for two reasons. Because I think that that's the, the the way the world's going to go. But I I grow in a very sort of funny microclimate where I, uh, it's very drought prone, and I have a sandy soil that doesn't maintain water. Mm. So I, I talk about things like you just mentioned, things like using mulches to keep the moisture in, uh, harvesting rainwater. Uh, I have, a, you know, I have a schematics and stuff for a solar pump that I have because I have a, a dug well near the garden. But you know, I, I don't have electricity over there, so I have a solar panel and a solar pump to pump the water out. And I use drip irrigation. Uh, that's one of the more efficient ways of uh, of, of using a, a limited amount of water to get the water to where you want it, which is the base of the plant. So, yeah, these are all going to become huge issues for anybody growing their own food.
0: Very cool, and one that's a little bit uh, maybe off topic, but I want to get your thoughts on before we wrap up is the threat of, of disease and, and, and pandemic. Eventually, do you do you see that as a potential
1: threat to, to humanity? I, I really do, and I mean you start sounding paranoid when you when you talk about it. But it, it just seems that these things happen so quickly. We have such a mobile population on this planet that flies around so quickly, so fast that. You know, when you start reading some of these books like The Hot Zone and stuff, you realize that it, it could happen and it and it may happen. And I got to say that that's one of the other reasons that I'm I'm, I'm such a big fan of living in the country because because I, I I know that if it does if it did happen, I don't have to leave my house for quite a while to, to get anything. So I can sort of wait something like that out.
0: It, it goes like kind of a self imposed quarantine. I mean, I've gone as far as one of the things we're adding to our remote location is a uh, a travel trailer, which we'll use for its intended purpose but will also be like if we ended up you know where we had a big pandemic and some someone from the family shows them you don't really want to turn them away but they've just come in from the city it's like okay you guys stay behind the gate and you can live in there for a couple weeks and if nobody's sick in the end of two weeks we'll we'll bring you on in but i mean there is something to say for a little bit of isolationism because contagious diseases uh, basically require another human being to transmit them to you and if you if you if you prevent that, then it just totally interrupts the threat. I mean, that's why governments impose quarantines. And, and and with uh, SARS, for example, which got into Canada, and you guys had some problems with it up there, it's what shut it down was finding it quickly and locking it down. But I, I think the potential for something to hit that we can't do that with is, is still out there. And, I, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be. I just watched a special last night on um, the bubonic plague. And there's there's some pretty good cases to be made that it wasn't – bubonic plague that was actually the black death it was something else we're not quite sure of and whatever that thing was it might even have been the plague but not as we know it today that mutated form could come back and we had you know the the 1917 1918 spanish flu epidemic and we just had the swine flu epidemic which let's be honest they they blew it way out of proportion but the infection rate was huge with that had that been a lethal strain of flu with a a two or three percent mortality rate it could have been a disaster no
1: yeah, and, and, and one sort of wonders if, 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 the, if the authorities don't realize how likely a, a much worse pandemic could be and, and were they not sort of using this as an opportunity to, to practice and, and get the systems in place that if, if, if it was worse that they, they'd have a, a course of action. Yep, yeah,
0: I agree with that. I think there was a lot of people that I kind of called to the, the tinfoil hat world out there, that when this was going on, they're going to do mandatory vaccines, and they're going to lock people up, and they're they're running these drills and all. And what I had said was it's not that that stuff could never happen. It's just that this thing isn't severe enough to warrant it. But I think we did start to see maybe the government tip its hand a little bit. And, and let's be fair, not all of it's in malice. It's if we get a disease that's killing five out of every 100 people that get it, severely aff- you know, severely affecting 50% of the people that get it, with a high infection rate, we overtax the hospital system in a day. It's done. It, 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 it yep. can't handle it. And we're back to those scary pictures of people at gymnasiums on cots laying next to each other. And, yeah, you, you said it sounds paranoid, but diseases don't care how old you are, how much money you have, what your race, your religion, your creed is. They just infect and in some portion they just kill, right? Yep.
1: No, I I I, I, I like your idea of having a, a little temporary quarantine zone there. It makes complete sense. If you're going to this effort, why not? It, it, yeah. There's not much of a downside to it.
0: And because the economy sucks, I've been looking. You can buy small travel trailers for next to nothing right now. And then, I think there was something else you hit on we'll kinda we'll talk about before we wrap up is you talked about getting out of debt, being prepared Um, stop buying stuff and all this stuff, and if you do that, when we have challenging times, instead of being in the middle of challenging times, you kind of inferred this earlier, you're really in the middle of an opportunistic time, aren't you?
1: A a, a huge opportunity, and that's why, uh, you know, I I, I talk about uh, in the book things like having having some cash around. You know, most of us get relying on all this electronic stuff, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of times having a bit of cash will make all the difference. Number one, obviously if there's a power outage, you know, people can't get anything, uh, so having some cash for that, but, uh, but, uh, you know, as, as a way, and I know this, it, this, I'm not contradicting what I said about gold. I think you should have some gold, but I also sure. think you should have some flexibility with cash. And 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 you're, you're bang on that. Uh, the challenging times are also times of huge opportunity. And again, if you if you if you're not if you're not laden with credit card debt and a huge mortgage and you've got some flexibility, you'll be able to pick up some of those opportunities like you're talking about. Yep. And right now, you know, solar panels because the, because of the downturn in the economy, solar panels are cheap. So now's a good time to be buying things like that. What's the
0: incentives, right? The, the the government incentives to buy them. So you've got a down economy, you've got a depressed price, and you've got a government incentive on top of it. But if you're $80,000 in debt to MasterCard, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, my grandfather used to tell me during the Great Depression, he'd go into town and they'd see like a bushel of apples for a nickel. And he'd just walk away going, damn, that's cheap. But it doesn't really yeah. matter if you don't have a nickel, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the the thing that I look about is, and one of the, the overlying themes I try to keep in the book is, is that there, there's there's no downside for anything I've suggested. You know, there's there's Notable. no downside to putting up solar panels and, and making yourself more independent. There's no downside to installing a ground source heat pump or a wood stove to heat your house. You know, there's there, there's very little downside I think right now to buying gold. You know, some of the when I started buying silver, I, I can't afford gold, but when I started buying silver. Uh, you know gold was about uh, $500 an ounce uh, it's about $1100 an ounce right now so in uh, and, and and throughout the world people with money are sort of pouring into gold and, and purchasing bullion because they see they see uncertain times as well so uh, you know all the things that i i suggest in the book it's not like you're ever going to sit back and say darn i, I wish i hadn't done that because you know what getting out of debt paying off your mortgage putting up solar panels putting in a root cellar putting in a, a pantry None of these are bad things. There's no downside to them.
0: Well, I love that message. I mean, I could bring you on as a co-host to the Survival Podcast talking like that. Um, that's the stuff we've been saying for so long. There is no downside to this. And if I could add one thing to the, the cash and gold to have on hand for especially acute disasters, the, the two-week problem where you need a neighbor to help you do some clearing with his chainsaw or whatever. The number one thing that I've talked, especially throughout the hurricane belt down here in Texas, that will get things done for you, um, during those times, at least with the redneck uh, coalition, is a couple six packs of beer um, when that stuff runs out you know guys like you need 20 bucks to help me clear my driveway and what am i going to do with it right now anyway right but a six pack of miller light and the saw is firing up and wood's flying um so that might be something to add as well and there's no downside to having a bit of beer around as well um you know we, we are about to, ready to wrap up here other than the, the your book again and folks i want you to check out i'll have a link uh, where you can get uh, Cam's book again. It's thriving during challenging times. The Energy, Food, and Financial Independence Handbook, and I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. But other than that book, do you have any other resources you want to tell people about? It's actually this book's put out by your publishing company. Is that is
1: that correct? Yep, yep, that's uh, that, that's my company.
0: And it is Aztex
1: Press. Aztecs Press. Uh, a- yeah, Aztecs. A Z T E X T. Cool.
0: So I'll, um, I'll put a link to to Aztec Press. I'll put a link to uh, where they can find your book. Um, also. Um, you uh, you got you have some other books. You mentioned the other one was the Renewable Energy Handbook.
1: Right, that's, that's the book that my, my my friend William Kemp wrote, and uh, it's one of the best-selling books in North America on renewable energy because Bill Bill really gets it. Not only does he live off the grid, but he's an engineer who who works with this stuff, and he's able to describe things in a way that, that's really understandable. So. It's been very motivational for a lot of people to get going on on putting up solar panels. The other thing he does is is he talks about the correct order to do it, which is starting with energy efficiency first in terms of getting energy efficient appliances, then going solar thermal, which is using the sun to heat your hot water, then going solar electric or wind for electricity. So that book really uh, lays things out uh, strategically in terms of how to approach them to get the the, the best bang for your buck and the best return on your investment.
0: And you got some DVDs too, right?
1: Uh, yeah, we do. We have some on putting up wind turbines and gardenings and things. I, I really, I think that what people might want to do personally is, is look at some books like you know Matt Sav- Matt uh, Simmons' book, uh, Twilight in the Desert: The Coming Saudi Oil Shock. Because I think some of these books help motivate you to the reality of peak oil. I think you need to talk to uh, to, to people who don't have a who don't have an, an interest other than wanting to explain to you the reality. So any book you can read on energy right now is is really helpful. One of the, one of the other places that I go for information is, is Life After the Oil Crash. I mean, your website is fabulous for information, but Matt Sappenaar over at Life After the Oil Crash likes to find articles about what's going on now that are a little less mainstream. Cool. And I think you need that. Because I think, you know, the mainstream media tends to put too rosy a picture on what's happening. So I think you need to, you need to look at alternative sources to, 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 to find those sorts of things.
0: Here's what um, I'd like to give you to think about with the peak oil thing and helping explain this to people. I had Bill Wilson on from Midwest Permaculture and he was talking about peak oil, right? And he said that he wanted to get his head around you know, how much oil is there. And, you know, estimates range from one and a half to two trillion barrels in reserves of oil. And he wanted to get his head around, well, how, what would that look like if we put all the oil in one big place together? So he lives up by the Great Lakes, so he thought, well, is it as big as the Great Lakes system? Well, no. Well, is it as big as Lake Superior or, or or, you know, what have you, one of the lakes? And the answer is no. And he said it's roughly equivalent to Green Bay. So if you look at Green Bay, that's all the oil that there is. And that's a lot, but it's, you know, not with, like you said, 1.6 billion Chinamen that want to live our lifestyle.
1: And well, and it does, yeah, and the, and the fact that we use 85 uh, million barrels a day, and 85 million barrels a day is, is comparable to 5,500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. So you oh. think of the, how much is sitting in in, uh, in in Green Bay there as our total reserve, but we're taking 5,500 Olympic-sized swimming pools out every day. Uh, it's a it's a staggering number, and you know the International Energy Agency keeps talking about, oh, we'll be able to ramp up to to you know to 90. A uh, million barrels a day, or 100 million barrels a day. I, I just, I just think they're they're they're, they're crazy. It's not going to happen. I don't think we're ever going to pump more than we're pumping right now. You
0: Even understand. if we do, there's still at a finite supply, right? Yes. There's still a point at which the the level of the lake starts to drop. And, and the the funny thing about when you ever watch a body of water's level drop, the the first part of it drops very very slowly. But as it drops a little further, all of a sudden it's, it almost, it's the same evaporation rate, but it appears to accelerate. And, and I think that's what we might find with oil and, Buddy, that goes and we take for granted how much that provides. And I think another thing you brought up in the show today that I want to re- re- reiterate here at the end is how much of that goes toward agricultural production. We hear so much you need to have a hybrid, you know, you need, you know, your, your car's destroying the polar bear's habitat or whatever. But 70% of the oil that we burn in North America goes directly to the agricultural and food production systems.
1: Yep. And, uh, and, and as we're running out, it, it's going to get awfully <laughs> expensive to grow food. So
0: I, I guess people can just go to Aztec Press and, and maybe either they can purchase your stuff on Amazon or.
1: Yep, you can you can get the books anywhere. Our, our website www.aztec.com It's a z t e x t dot com. Uh, the books are there, but you can you can get them on on any website and uh, and and yeah, just uh, you know. I keep, I think the, the more that you can read or or listen to shows like yours that reinforces this, the more likely you'll be to say, you know what, this year we're not renting a cottage uh, on the seashore. We're gonna we're gonna take that two thousand dollars and we're gonna do these things, which are going to make us more independent and, and try to get yourself out of that North American consumer mode and get yourself into a into a, an energy and personal independence mode. And uh, I think that's what's going to make the, the biggest difference for you in the long run.
0: So to quote Cam Mather in his book, um, the Energy, Food, and Financial Independence Handbook, Stop Buying Stuff, right?
1: Well, I qualify it, though. Stop yeah. buying stuff as well, but it doesn't make you energy independent. So Exactly. The odd, the odd solar panels, a few shotgun shells, those are okay.
0: Yeah, I got you. Well, hey, Cam, <laughs> thanks for being with us today. Do you have any final words before I wrap the show up? Uh,
1: no. Uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Jack.
0: Thanks, Cam. Um, folks, I... I think this was a great interview, Cam. I really appreciate you being here. I want you guys to check out Cam's book again. It's Thriving During Challenging Times, the Energy, Food, and Financial Independence Handbook. Uh, I think it can really help you out. Check out all the other great stuff that they have over at Aztec Press, Uh, the Renewable Energy Handbook. I'm sitting here looking at a copy of it. Remember, when I recommend a book, it's on my bookshelf or I don't do it. I can't recommend either one of these highly enough. And take to heart the things that you heard today. What I heard out of Cam Mather today was, was a person that actually gives a damn about you. And that's the kind of person that I try to bring on the show, people that care about other people. It's not, hey, he wants to sell a bunch of his books. I'm sure he won't he won't cry a tear or anything if you buy a copy, and that will be helpful to his efforts. But when you put the kind of effort that goes into writing books like these uh, into them, it's more than the financial return. You're looking to make sure that you can help people so that when we do have big problems, and you're standing there watching them happen, and you help as many people as you can, but you're a limited person, you can only do so many things, you don't sit back and go, I wish I did more. So I think that's a great message to take away today, and, and I want you to feel that way about your community and your own family. I don't want you to ever sit back and look at a catastrophe and go, I wish we did more what we could have had the opportunity to do so. Food is cheap today, energy is cheap today, and the means to independence is cheap today. Take the opportunity you have now to develop that independence now. And that's a great way to start living that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. This is Mitch Jack Spirico and Cam Mather with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. Well, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Survival Podcast Friday Flashbacks. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to com and click on members to learn more. You can also support our show by going to Tspas, that's T S P A Z com Anytime you shop online and while you'll support us no matter what you buy, you will find over 500 reviews of items I have personally tested and vouched for. And to stay in touch with us and never miss anything, Follow our channel or our group on Telegram. You can find links to that and all our social media options. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and check the show notes for any episode.